Welcome back. I'm Peter Wood, and I'm the author of Mud Between Your Toes, A Rhodesian Farm, which is a memoir about my life growing up in Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, in the 1960s and 70s. This is a podcast about family, independence, loss, and above all, identity. The other day I was sitting on my terrace out here in the Saikung Hills, sending out WhatsApps, emails, filling in e-forms for my tax and healthcare, and of course scrolling through endless online newspapers that just seemed obsessed with Brexit, Megxit, and the childish feud between a 73-year-old president and a 17-year-old climate activist from Sweden. And it got me thinking how precious it was to receive any kind of mail back on the farm in the 1960s and 70s. And even after I'd flown the coop, I'd write letters home on those flimsy blue aerograms and tiny lettering so that we could fit in all our news. International phone calls were too expensive and rather haphazard, so we relied on the written word. Of course, ever since the penny black, stamp collecting was a popular hobby. I'd inherited a wonderful stamp collection from my granddad with some pretty amazing stamps dating back to the turn of the century. I instantly became an avid philatelist. I need to pronounce that one correctly. But sadly, my parents' rather sad selection of mail hardly inspired me. I needed more. Anyway, this story is called The Stamp Collector. Masipi Farm was, as I've mentioned many times, located in a district called the Victory Block, named after the Allies' victory in World War II. The V Block, as it was known locally, was a wild, rugged part of Mashonaland. land. Masitwi was 13,000 acres in size, and you could easily lose yourself amongst the rocky hills and heavily wooded valleys, which I did on occasion, totally losing my bearings. As remote as we were, it was surprisingly easy to find the V-block, albeit somewhat harder to find the farm amongst the woodlands and coppies. If you drove the 100-odd miles north from Salisbury, turned left at Mbukwis, and drove another 26 miles, you might, if you were alert, come across the Masitwi Halt. It was easily missed, and not exactly a landmark, being, as it was, entirely made of thatching grass and leaned jauntily to one side. Next to the hut at the halt stood a bent gum pole, attached to which were two plough discs. One stenciled a neat Times Roman, T. Harrington, Calston Ranch, five miles while the other and somewhat more rustic, albeit more artistic script, currently twisted upside down by some naughty children and the arrow pointing skywards, stating, J.A.C. Wood Esquire, Masitwi Farm. A third disc lay propped up on the ground. If you parted the road's grass, you would see the sign for Alan Crouch, 
Windsor Ranch, whose property lay beyond the Harringtons. Now, more of the Crouchers and the Harringtons later. Driving up to the Holt always meant that we were home. It stood as a leaky shelter for our mail, safety for wary travellers waiting for the Matambanadzo bus, and a beacon to visitors who had got lost. Remember, just drive 100 miles from Salisbury, turn left at Mbukwe's, then another 26 miles, turn left again at the Masitwi Halt. You can't possibly miss it. That shabby hut stood there for years, surviving bushfires, several heavy rainy seasons, and even the odd drunk driver, Tim Harrington, take note. We always laughed at the grandiose idea of calling it a halt. A halt indicates some sort of landmark, which this certainly was not. The rather forlorn, scrappy-looking thatched hut was built to keep our canvas post bag dry. Both the Harringtons and the Woods shared the same post bag, private bag 235A Salisbury delivered together with dry goods ordered from the farmer's co-op twice a week on Tuesday and Thursday and tossed unceremoniously from the massive grey lorry belonging to the Rhodesia Mail Service, or RMS. News trickled in like rain off the granite copies, droplet by droplet, occasionally a gush, mainly at Christmas, but mostly just snippets of mail now and then. Mail day was always a disappointment in the Wood household. Condor the houseboy or Shine the garden boy would cycle up from the Holt, which is about three kilometres away, with the large canvas bag balanced on the carrier and deliver the packet at my dad's feet. Quite literally. My father would tip the contents onto the slate floor and sort through the Rhodesia Herald, the letters and the magazines. Harrington, invoice. Harrington, magazine from overseas. Harrington, airmail letter from the UK. Harrington, small, slightly buggered up parcel from somewhere fabulous. Harrington, another aerogram letter. God, how many relatives did they have in the UK? Wood, at last one for us. Sadly, a dull-looking farming document which went directly into the cured, hairy buffalo scrotum which we kept all our bills in. This rather grisly homemade bit of taxidermy held pride of place on our half-wall in the sitting room all of my life. Our eyes would dart through the pile of mail looking for those blue airmail envelopes, hoping that just maybe one of them was from our Aunt Susie or cousins Madeleine and Mark in England. Or even my mum's cousin, Lady Montague. They even had their own Bewley stamp. I never asked the Harringtons if they minded, but at the time I was an avid stamp collector and I'd gather all their letters from overseas and neatly tear off the stamps. If I wasn't going to get letters from overseas, I was jolly well going to get the stamps. It never occurred to me that they might be furious at having received letters with neat little holes torn out of them. 
Often a whole segment of a sentence might be missing. On good days, it looked like a rat had got loose inside their mailbag. On bad days, when special edition Royal Mail Christmas stamps were issued, the Harrington's post must have resembled Belgian lace. Mind you, I can now boast one of the most eclectic stamp collections, thanks to our good neighbours. The Crouchers, whose farm was beyond the Harringtons, to my knowledge, had their own mailbag delivered by Maturashanga. It's a pity I could have used some stamps from their post. I bet they had some very interesting overseas friends. Alan Crouch was a fascinating chap. During World War II, he was one of those mad human torpedoes. They used to sneak up on the German ships on one-man or two-man chariot submarines and attached limpet mines to the ships while they were in harbour. I'm not sure how successful they were, but God, they were brave. I once called Alan a fascist, and quite rightly, he gave me 40,000 words explaining how he had fought the bloody fascists. The last thing he was was a fascist. I think I was trying to be funny. I was mortified, as I obviously had no idea about his past. Now Doreen, Alan's wife, was equally fascinating. She was terribly grand. She reminded me of Princess Diana's stepmother. What was her name? Countess Rain Spencer. Anyway, once during the Rhodesian Bush War, Doreen was interviewed by, I think, the Guardian newspaper, which of course was quite liberal. The Guardian were always trying to get a dig in about Rhodesians. In fact, a couple of years later, I think 1980, their correspondent Simon Hoggart wrote an amazing piece about ironing the lawn in Salisbury. It was one of those ridiculous articles that began with, Government House in Salisbury is decorated and furnished in a manner which makes Versailles seem, well, middle class. What bloody tosh. Government House is actually quite humble. The editorial goes on. After a while, you realise exactly who the trappings are designed to impress. The lost race of Africa. The tribe that lost its head. The whites of southern Rhodesia. Christ almighty, how did journalists get away with that sort of crap? But it doesn't end there. Hoggett continues the narrative in the same vein with a final flourish, ending with the now infamous catty remark. Around the average Salisbury bungalow are three or four acres of rich land, thick with shrubbery, flower beds, rolling lawns, arboretums. So much greenery, you feel you need a platoon of Gurkhas to hack your way through to the front door. A team of servants irons the grass each morning as the sun rises over the sparkling pool. Oh, God, naturally, we were wary of journalists. The correspondent interviewing Doreen was beginning to get up her nose with his line of questioning. He clearly disapproved of Doreen's privileged lifestyle. Now tell me, Mrs. Crouch, he asked, pen poised, horn rims perched upon his Roman nose. 
Is it true that you employ a servant purely to comb your pet Pekingese? Without a beat, Doreen looked at him and said, My dear man, doesn't everybody? Interview over. Now, the Harringtons were equally as fascinating. Tim Harrington was a Scottish Arbuckneth, terribly grand, and they even had a town named after them in Concordanshire. Their family went back to the 11th century. The Arbuthnets' most infamous moment came around 1420, when Hugh Arbuthnet was part of a gang implicated in the murder of the local sheriff, John Melville of Glen Burvey. Now, weirdly, Glen Burvey was the farm my dad worked on in Scotland and Concordanshire after World War II. Anyway, I digress. Back in 1420, Sheriff Melville was a strict authoritarian, and his hard line had made him extremely unpopular with many local lairds. The Duke of Albany, Regent of Scotland at the time, no doubt tiring of the stream of complaints, was alleged to have said, Sorrow gin that sheriff were sodden and supped and brew, which was taken by the disgruntled lairds as a signal to kill the sheriff. The lairds took his comments all too literally, with alarming results. They invited Melville to a hunting party in the forest of Garvick, the unsuspecting sheriff was lured to a prearranged spot where he was killed by throwing him into a cauldron of boiling water. After he was truly sodden, each took a spoonful of the murderous brew. Now let me tell you about Tim Harrington's wife, Jean. Jean was one of the more widely travelled people I knew. Born into a prestigious military family, her father being Major General Sir Lancelot Cutforth, she found herself living in China in 1932, Japan in 1933, soon followed by India, and then Germany in 1946. As a young lady, she was snapped up by the war office, working for SIME, S-I-M-E, which was the special intelligence branch in the Middle East. While there, she travelled to Cyprus and Damascus during the upheavals in 1951. Finally, in 1957, she was employed by MI5 and set sail for Rhodesia via Mombasa. Where she met Tim, on the dockside apparently, got married and settled in the V-block. You would never know I had such illustrious neighbours. Jean was so unassuming and quite down to earth. Still, the sort of letter Jean might receive from overseas would always seem much more fascinating than the dreary farmer's bump my dad received. Occasionally, sending Jean letters in a tatty old mailbag simply wasn't tennis. Indeed, it wasn't unusual for rather officious-looking tops turning up on Kelston Ranch with a diplomatic briefcase and a royal crown on the side. I never knew what they contained.
Of course, our old canvas mailbag wasn't quite so glamorous. Poor Jean must have thought that her letters were being censored by the government, what with all the holes in them. I don't know if it's worth mentioning, but another farmer in the victory block, Robbie Walmsley, was the nephew of Beatrix Potter, and Rob owned an entire first edition signed collection of Beatrix Potter books. Unfortunately, the entire lot were destroyed when his house burnt down. But I'm going on a bit. Back to the mail. Once a month we might be surprised with one of my parents' journals. John always the Rhodesian farmer, with its highly forgettable black and white cover of some somewhat droll farmer. Floppy khaki hat pulled down over his brow, standing next to his incredibly solid prize Hereford, festooned with rosettes or proudly holding up a large, wrinkled grey thing that turned out to be a tobacco leaf. I expect it looked more alluring in colour. The only thing worth reading in The Rhodesian Farmer was the cartoon Footrot Flats, about a thick Kiwi farmer and his clever border collie called Dog. Mum subscribed to a slightly more salubrious sort of mag, South African Homes and Garden, Fair Lady, and the best of all, the rather racy Scope magazine, often featuring frightfully sexy men and women in what now must be considered rather tame, if not lame, poses, and strategically pasted black stars. We would get my mum's Cutex nail varnish remover and try to work off the black ink, we rarely succeeded and only ended up making a hole through the bloody page. My gran wouldn't be seen dead with this kind of tat. She received wonderful otherworldly glossy magazines like Harper's and Queen, British Vogue and Women's Weekly, all of which cost my poor long-suffering granddad a bomb in a country under sanctions. I mean, let's talk about sanctions. Sanctions were an absolute drag. United Nations and those dodgy communist places up north, as my dad would love reminding us, imposed economic, trade and even travel sanctions on us back in 1965 after we had declared UDI from Great Britain. For a teenager, it meant no decent sweets like Quality Street or Black Magic Chocolates, no fizz pops from down south, no Levi jeans or Adidas track shoes. Sanctions, frankly, were just a bore. It also meant zero travel to foreign climes. These travel bans remained in place from 1965 to 1980, and they weren't targeted at politicians or military generals. They covered everyone with Rhodesian passports. Incredible. You couldn't visit overseas relatives, ill or otherwise, funerals, weddings. They even stopped us from laying a wreath at the Cenotaph in London on Poppy Day, which just seemed odd seeing as 26, 27,000 southern Rhodesians of all races had served in the armed forces by war's end. We got 
And so it was through stamps that I was able to travel on my fantasy journeys to places I simply couldn't imagine ever visiting in real life, to climates that had white Christmases, and to palm-fringed tropical islands, snow-capped mountains, skyscrapers and cathedrals, quaint English villages, and ancient Welsh castles. And for that, I thank Jean for making my otherwise dull, listless summer afternoons on the farm every Tuesday and every Thursday slightly more fantastic. Before I end off, I feel that it's worth thinking about that poor sheriff of Glen Burvey, who was supped in brew. When my dad bought Masitwi Farm, he was going to call it Glen Burvey. How interesting to think that had that happened, then Tim Harrington of Arbuthnet would have come over to John Wood of Glen Burvey every Tuesday to sup of his brew. Only now, the brew was G&T. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for Mud Between Your Toes, feel free to write to me. Goodbye.